0: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Professor Belen and Professor Berglund, who are two of the editors of the Diné Reader, an anthology of Navajo Literature. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having us.
1: It's good to be here, Christina.
2: I'm so glad that you're both here and that we get to talk about this wonderful book and what went into the creation of it. But before we do that, I wonder if you will both tell us about yourselves. Esther, could we begin with
3: you? Sure. Uh, I am from the Navajo Nation and currently I teach at the Fort Lewis College And I have written two books of poetry. So while I do focus on poetry quite a bit, I'm also an artist and I've been doing more, uh, group, I've been doing more group collaborative art, uh, around the four corners. And I also, I mean, I guess. Something that's interesting is that I was raised in the L.A. area and have moved back closer to my Navajo homeland.
2: Thank you. And Jeff, could you tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm a professor of English at Northern Arizona University, which is located in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I've been here since 1999, and it was probably a year after Uh, we moved here that I met Esther and learned of her first book and invited her to campus and uh, our friendship and professional, you know, working scholarly relationship continued uh, since then. In fact, my most recent publication uh, is on her second book of poetry uh, of cartography. Uh, I teach regularly. I regularly teach, um, Native American and Indigenous Literature and Film. I published um, a number of co-edited collections and this most recent um, book from 2021 um, was nearly a decade in the making and uh, you know one of the richest collaborative experiences of my professional life, working not just with Esther, but also our colleagues, Connie Jacobs and Anthony Webster. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that collaboration.
2: We will. And before we do that, one thing I like to ask the guests, especially because it's important to the listeners to know more about how people did their own academic journey. I like to ask if you could take us back to when you were looking ahead to college and what you thought you would do and how you got to where you are now. Esther, could we start with you?
3: Sure, I. Uh, hmm. You know, when I started applying to colleges uh, in high school, I really I only applied to three, and two of them were UC schools because I lived in the LA area. And I once I got into UC Berkeley, I just accepted right away, and, um, and I think at the time, right, I probably should have um, held out a, bit, a little bit longer to hear from the third school, but it was a really good fit for me. Uh, the distance was just far enough to be outside of the LA area and close enough where i really could go home and visit my family who's still in los angeles and as far as what i wanted to study i really thought highly of the health sciences at that time and i think a lot of that motivation to work in the health field was really because of the lack of Indigenous healthcare workers, and it, you know, it obviously wasn't my calling because I, I really got engrossed in writing and literature and uh, Indigenous studies at UC Berkeley. So that um, kind of pivoted my direction as far as undergraduates, and I feel like because I was a first-gen student. At a large institution, there was a bit of, you know, academic identity crisis in the sense that I was not sure I was at the right place and meaning in um, higher education, because a lot of the material and the relevancy of what I was learning didn't match the reality of indigenous people and especially my tribe at that time Uh, you know the film broken rainbow had just won the academy award shortly before i entered uh, university and and so i felt there was a sense of urgency for activism and awareness to be with uh you know my community and to really doing work on the ground there And, you know, so after kind of working through that struggle, I realized that a lot of my work for my community is taking more of the route of higher education. So that's that's where I am now.
2: And after college, you did some time at grad school as well.
3: No, so I took a really unusual route so, I, I went to, like I said, UC Berkeley, where I was maybe one of, uh, you know, 300, which is an overestimate, of Native students at that university of about 30,000. And that's the undergraduate level. There was probably a little more, including grad students. And, you know, being educated in the LA area, which was extremely diverse, but not diverse within Indigenous. Um, community, I actually went to an Indian boarding school, uh, the Institute of American Indian Arts, which operated as a boarding school at that time that I attended. And that was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And that is actually where I really uh, started feeling more acclimated to my position in education. And with my education, so the school at the time had about 200 students and probably like um, 99% of them were indigenous. So um, a lot of my education was just getting to know other Indian students from around the United States, uh, building up my connection through cultural activities. So I took, like, traditional um, arts as well as printmaking and oil painting. And my official major at the school was in creative writing. And because it operated as a boarding school, it just offered an associate's degree. So I graduated from there with an AA in creative writing. And... Um, and then that's actually where I met my husband. So we started a family shortly after and I didn't uh, go back for grad school until hmm, like years later. Uh, so I have I have four four daughters. So I had I think all my four kids were here by the time I went back to grad school. So, uh, you know, I really tried to blend uh, education within my own community because I grew up off the reservation. So to me, that was equally important, if not more at that time. And then eventually I, I, I did go back to graduate school.
2: And can you tell us a little bit about your experience at graduate school?
3: Sure. I I think, you know, I I took a different route, again, in in the sense that I I wanted to go back to the LA area. I wanted to specifically study um, more within the discipline of of poetry. And I was an older student because I was already married, had four children. And I went to Antioch University, um, the LA campus, and you know they had a social justice component which really attracted me, and and I found really a, a good community there that had similar uh, kind of motivations for learning about poetry and poetics and the power that it can have. And so, a lot of my second book was written in that experience.
2: Thank you. Jeff, will you tell us um, about when you were looking ahead to college and how you got from there to here?
1: Yeah, I'll probably. um, Mine's a little less interesting than Esther's, I think, um, in a few ways. One is that um, I was a third generation um, college student and my parents were both scientists. So that in interesting ways shaped um, my initial plan to go also also pursue the health sciences and go to medical school. So I was a pre-med major, biology major. And I always tell people the quick version of the story is that organic chemistry changed my mind (laughs) or changed the course of the path I was on. And I was also taking lots of um, creative writing and English classes at the time, and was very much interested in then um, pursuing an English major. Um, And so it was that route that led me to grad school at Wash U in St. Louis, and then eventually to Ohio State University, where um, I found, I think, the Foundation and the seed for the path that I continued to pursue. Um, like Esther, I met um, my partner, my wife Monica, at um, Ohio State, and um, while our while we were on the same degree path to complete a PhD, um, and while we shared a dissertation advisor, I was a few years ahead of her, and it was eventually um, that led to us being. Uh, in Flagstaff at Northern Arizona University. But what I really became interested in, in graduate school, first at WashU and then especially at Ohio State was something that I didn't study when I was an undergrad. And that was um, about the, the way, the power of literature to represent the past, to challenge misconceptions and mythologies about the past and to also shape the public's imagination about who we are as a nation or as a culture, who individuals are, um, how cultures are represented, represented that is um, in literature and how that creates possibilities, right. Um, That are not just um, limited by the actions of those in the past. And so that's a, a you know a quick, very general way of summing summing up um, some of the the ways that um, I was shaped at Ohio State um, in my PhD program, and that led to you know my my current work. What I ended up doing in my dissertation was primarily looking at the way that issues of race and racism. Um, other types of inequities that are linked to differences related to sexuality and gender are represented in literature. And I looked at the the figure of, the, the motif of the cannibal or cannibalism. And it was when I was revising that dissertation into my first book called Cannibal Fictions, American Explorations of Race, Colonialism, Gender and Sexuality, that I... Um, Added a powerful late chapter um, that looked at the ways that indigenous writers were revising um, and reimagining uh, the cannibal trope, um, particularly describing and representing colonialism as a not just a form of cannibalism, but as cannibalism. Um, so that's the path of a would be science major, um, bio major, pre med. Um, focus um, to someone who's been teaching in an English department or teaching literature since 1997. Um, postscript on this is that our daughters are both scientists. <laughs> one's, a, one's a med student and one is a, an engineering um, student.
2: And so we're here today to talk about the creation of this book, And I wonder if you will tell us what inspired you to do this book. Esther, could we start with you?
3: Sure. The the origins of the Dene reader really came from conversations that Connie Jacobs had with myself, but also with Jeff Berglund, who both at the time were teaching Native American literature at different institutions. And both institutions had a high um, Navajo student population. And, you know, eventually, I got um, invited to participate in in this creation and formation of it. But the real need, again, kind of goes back to what I said about my experience in higher education is that there was just a complete absence awareness, um, you know, misunderstanding around indigenous literature and particularly around Navajo poetry and poetics and how it's related to language revitalization and culture, as well as constructs around race and how that affects you know, individual students who are going to school on the reservation, on the Navajo reservation, which does abide by state um, guidelines. So the Navajo reservation includes curriculum guidelines from the states of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. So depending on where students live, they're exposed to different schools of thought around education what is incorporated and what's left out. And a common theme that we saw even in some of the border town areas around the Nav- Navajo Reservation was that there was just a missing component of our own voices within literature, within story. And you know how the system, the the education system was really enabling that disconnect by not having a text available to use. And so that, that so there was a wide <laughs> a wide room for us to really develop this text and really discuss and think about it and include all of the different elements that are are that are present in the book.
2: And it's a very teacher-friendly design for the book. The back has resources for teachers and readers. There's also an extensive timeline. There's um, biographies of the contributors. Um, There's uh, so much uh, content as well. It's 409 pages long. Um, How long does the creation of a project like this take?
3: you know, it took um, probably a decade. I think we haven't really estimated um, or pinpointed the, t- the time period, but also, you know, crucial to the book, which could have made it even longer, right, was including our um, our, our friend, Anthony Webster, who is a, a linguist, an anthropologic, anthropology linguist, and he added a really nice, um, again, a, a nice uh, view of how Navajo language is created and used in contemporary ways by poets. And, and so, you know, the book easily could have been longer and it could have been a little more um, inclusive of writers. But I think, you know, we were really putting it together for, um, you know, several years.
1: One of the things I'd like to, to add in, in terms of the, um, the process of creating the book and, and as well as the inspiration, is that so many of the writers that we were able to include were well-established and well-regarded, um, well-published their own right, either in um, you know their own um, with with separate books, right individual books or many books um, in the case of authors like Lucy Tapahanzo and others had been anthologized um, from the early 70s on. but what we, what we wanted to do is put many of the writers and um, their various perspectives and voices in conversation with each other and over and through time. And so we spent quite a bit of time thinking about some of the earliest writers who had fallen um, to some degree to the wayside, just you know by by the nature of um, how the process of time and attentive literary attentiveness works, but also because they hadn't um, been afforded the opportunity to really um, find the right readership in their own particular time periods. And then we also were looking to connect to emerging voices, and that was probably the biggest challenge. And in the year since, and a year and a half since this book first came out, you know, more and more writers, you know, are, are being published and being recognized. And what we we quickly and easily, but not dismissively, say is, well, they will be part of uh, another book, um, volume two, maybe edited by um, Esther and uh, and others. Um, but part of the next the next volume. By no means is this the final word on Diné literature. Um, in terms of the inspiration for the book, um, I echo many of the sentiments that um, that Esther offered. But we did we you know working with teachers in the region, especially from the Navajo Nation, we recognize the challenges that teachers face in terms of incorporating a new book such as this into the curriculum. And we wanted to make it as user-friendly as possible. And that's why we wrote pretty extensive biographies, conducted interviews with each of the writers who are living and or willing. Um, I think we have interviews from almost every single writer, but one or two. Um, And then we also provide, you know, enlisted um, um, Michael Thompson, who's Muskogee, the only um, non dene um, uh, contributor to the book of all of the 35 indigenous contributors who taught for many many years on the Navajo Nation, and we wanted to enlist his uh, his help um, in developing with the editorial group um, the resources because we wanted there to be a, a simpler way for teachers to begin to to, be, to begin to adapt. Uh, adopt this book um, within their own curriculum. We also have an extensive chronology provided by the historian um, Dr. Jennifer Dinetteal, um, a chronology of important events in Navajo history, but also in terms of Diné literary history. And then we have a comprehensive bi- bibliography of, of primary sources and secondary sources. And of course, this is still evolving. And um, you can add to it um, every, every single month. So I just wanted to say that while um, this is a unique book in drawing this many writers together in one place, by no means is this the first time the writers are seeing the light of day in print. Quite the opposite.
2: One of the things that I really appreciated about the book was the interviews. Um, I'm curious how they were done and how they
3: came about. Wow. We really worked uh, for those interviews, (laughs) meaning that some of the contributors live on the Navajo reservation and, you know, communication had to be in person. So we really met folks where they're at and spent time with them to get the interviews and you know to follow up with things and and so we we started off in a variety of ways um with the interviews um you know so meeting with folks and just having um, conversations with them and then in you know, later in our discussions, we realized it might be helpful to have a set of similar questions that everyone's answering, right? Um, Especially around Navajo um, influences and their writing, and then, you know, who's the first um, Navajo writer that they've read. And, and so While most of the interviews have the same set of questions, there's, I think, uh, maybe two that, uh, you know, kind of veer off into different directions. But the interviews were something that we definitely realized was important. Um, So although it is user-friendly for um, teachers, one of the other goals of the book was to make it also really appealing to emerging writers. And so that's why we really wanted to get a photo and include everybody's clan um, in in the biographies and to get an interview um, with the writers while they were in the flux of writing and awareness around other Navajo writers in their life.
2: Something else I'm curious about is um, how each writer um, selected what they would be contributing. Um, Esther, you're one of the featured authors. Can you speak to your experience of curating what would be in your section?
3: Sure. I I think, um, you know, we as editors, we had a lot of conversations. I often think like I wish I took better notes during those conversations and um, or if we were even able to record them because we talked a lot before you know any action um occurred we really thought from many angles on 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 what this reader represented and you know thinking of the person picking up and who's going to use it and how useful and what um, age range and you know we've originally we thought from you know high school to you know um, first second year um, university but we've heard from people who are using it at middle in middle school level so that that's really exciting and because of that big expanse And as Jeff mentioned earlier, many of the writers in the volume are well-established and and many well-known writings. And and so I really, we we had a little bit of a dilemma. Do we really reprint a lot of the more well-known writings or do we try to incorporate this nice arc of, of what we feel would be a good representation of um, Navajo literature. And I I feel like we had a little bit of a tug back and forth. And and I think all of that is included. So really, we tried to go for all of it. And for me, my lens was particular in that I want to make sure that we're capturing certain themes and certain poetic elements. And so that was representative of my work. So I was able to pick and choose my work. And for us, that, that's how we did it as editors. We really um, requested certain pieces from each uh, writer.
1: Christina, this is a, a great question and an awesome chance to reflect on you know, that nearly 10-year process. I think we began, as Esther was saying, building sort of wish lists individually as editors. And then we also, when we put the work side by side across all of the authors, started looking for gaps thematically, um, in terms of form and style, um, contributions to the unique, you know, story um, that breaks apart monolith, a monolithic idea, you know, of a single version of being Diné and Navajo, and so we are looking for those kinds of complexities. We also recognize that readers will want some of the the best of or the standard hits. And so it was a matter of kind of uh, balancing that. And then we were also looking at new writers um, and excerpts from longer works as well. And so all of those things came into play. And then the fairly easy negotiation with writers and then their previous publishers about republishing um, the older works, right? Right. Um, and so it was a really fun and interesting process, um, but one that was complex, not very vexed. I think it's a testament to our working relationship and then the, um, incredible generosity and agreeability of the authors with whom we were working. And so in a few cases we might've, I wouldn't even call it negotiation. We might've, you know, been in discussions with authors about a particular work, and they might have suggested another work um, in its place, but I, I I don't remember that at all. The, the the two cases that were particularly interesting were with authors who are no longer with us, and so working with their family members, and then their collaborators, and that was you know an incredible experiences as, as well, and really relied on in person. Meetings, for example, with Gray Coho's um, family. And then another poet, Gloria Emerson, her friendship with the Coho family helped Esther and Connie um, in particular negotiate uh, bringing Gray Coho's work back into light, the light of day in in this collection. Um, Same thing with Tiana Bighorse, although I will say that um, I negotiated that via email. Um, with both her daughter and then her colleague um, and with whom she published.
2: In the, in the back, in the timeline um, on page uh, 367, it notes that 14 of the authors in this book have graduated as an undergraduate or from a graduate program at the Institute of American Arts, and others have taught there. It seems then that the Institute of American Arts has been really pivotal um, for Navajo literature. Do you want to talk about that?
3: Sure. You know, the, <laughs> you know I, I think as far as boarding school projects, the Institute of the American Indian Arts really focused in on, on that the arts and creative arts is an expression and I, I think that success that came out of the school was because of that you know when we talk about intergenerational trauma and, and inherited trauma from boarding school experience as well as other u.s federal indian policies you know a lot of trauma response is in inability to articulate verbally. And and so the arts are just a natural way to have a nonverbal expression and to really unfold all of the complexity around not only just that person, but the, the past And then also creating the legacy, um, for forward. And, and so I I don't feel like that may have been, you know, in the planning, but I, I feel like that is definitely the result. And, you know, and like I said, when I went there, it truly operated as a boarding school. And, and so the admission process was, um, you know, I think more simplified than regular university application. It really just had to be a simple portfolio and initiative to develop creatively as well as academically and be challenged that way. And I think the community actually was the strength for me. All the the different um, students who seemed to be working constantly right in the paint studio in the pottery studio in their dorm rooms um, writing and, and it was just that energy and that flow I think that really allowed for people to join in on on that creativity and and so I, I, it is a really interesting collection that includes so many representatives from that school and the draw there, I, I think is still that, that it is small, it is arts focused and it is an indigenous school where you will meet people from all over, um, you know, all over the United States and first nations. Um, and some international students as well. When I was there, there were uh, quite a number of Japanese students. So I I think that international feel and intertribal feel uh, was and is truly a nice um, foundation for emerging writers. And also it's representative of the contributors in the collection.
2: We've talked about some of the contents of the book and um, how teacher-friendly and user-friendly it is for people from a variety of ages. You said as young as middle school. I was thinking this could also easily be assigned in graduate school um, because there's so many layers to the work. And as people mature, they'll see different things to to connect with. But when you pick up the book, um, the first thing you notice is the artwork on the cover. I was wondering if we could talk about the art, the creator of the art, and the selection of this piece.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll let Jeff, Jeff talk about the artwork, but I do want to mention, um, you know, we weren't short on trying to figure out who would be on the cover. Um, we have uh, Vinaya Yazi, Gloria Emerson, um, Sherwin Bitsui, uh, as well as Shanto and myself, who did visual art. So we, our problem, I think, was just finding the right piece.
1: That was definitely the case. Um, and Shanto Bocay lives in, works today, in, or for many years in Flagstaff, and so I've known, um, I, I've known him and known the work that he produced for. Um, for children as well that includes um, his paintings as well as his prose and poetry. And so in the process of including um, Shanto's written work, um, I began kind of surveying um, a number of his paintings. And what jumped out to me is the number of paintings of Shanto's that feature um, mainly young boys or young men reading and they're often in a natural environment reading often either with sheep while they're sheep herding or with their dog presumably also while they're sheep herding and when i interviewed shanto in his studio um, downtown flagstaff um, he was actually working on a little um Library, like a lending library, um, a couple of pieces that featured, again, images of uh, young um, Dine men reading. And then we were talking about this particular painting that ended up on the cover as one called The Story Rock that's, that hangs in the Phoenix Public Library uh, that features a, a young man reading on a, a large rock. And I asked him about this this recurring image or theme in his paintings. And he said it's really autobiographical and reflects the younger version of himself. Uh, He used to read when he was charged with herding the sheep, and he always had a book with him. And he also kept books, and I mentioned, I think he mentions this rather in the interview, uh, he mentions keeping books wrapped up in plastic at two different locations at either end of where He would range um, while sheep herding and they were his library that he borrowed from um, during the day on these various trips and in the interview he speaks about the the possibility of books um, transporting you beyond um, almost acting like a spaceship of sorts or a magic carpet allowing you to experience new things and to visit new places and so i thought that was a powerful um, image and it ended up leading us to Choose the title um, for the book as well. Um, you know, punning in some ways on the image. Um, so those of you who are listening and who haven't seen the cover of the book, um, Chanteau Baguet's paintings um, are often done in this you know impressionistic style. It's not exactly pointillism, um, but there there are elements that might remind you of Van Gogh's paintings, um, as well as some of the other French impressionists. Um, In this particular painting, there are earth tones from the desert southwest, you know, rust, gold, oranges, some um, sage sage color. Um, And then there's in this particular painting an ominous, um, to some views, ominous looking um, sky with dark swirling clouds um, in some of the darker tones, black and gray and, and the blues. Uh, but then in the standing in the center firmly, um, without worry, seemingly, um, and with dedicated focus is this young person, this young man, uh, reading a book.
2: You, you mentioned, um, Esther, that a number of the contributors are visual artists as well. And and as are you, um, was there consideration to including more visual art within the book, or was it always going to be one piece selected just for the cover?
3: It, we definitely had conversations around that, around how can we incorporate more of the arts. And again, like I said, you know, the book could have been much larger. And, and I also forgot to mention um, Natanya Pulley and Tina Discheapney they um, have been doing this great collage work, and and so I, I think that's not uncommon for uh, just Danet people to really have multiple mediums of creative process. And I think for me, and I've and I know I've heard it from Sherwin, you know, the physical process of of. Creating um, two-dimensional pieces really is a nice complement to more of the cognitive process of writing, and and so I think that's another balance. So we did talk about possibly including artwork from everyone, and and you know we just weren't sure how that would work because we already had not a, a large amount of illustration, but we had a, a couple. Um, images in in the beginning of the book and we just weren't and then we had um, pictures of everyone so we really just weren't sure how um, to embrace that and as we were thinking of images as well it also led to conversations around do we need divisions in the book how do we divide things up and you know the final uh, of course, was just to leave um, a lot of the visual art, all of the visual art out, except for the last um, comic by Tatum.
1: And I think, I, yeah, I wanted to address the um, the graphic story that's the last entry in the book as well by Tatum Begay. Um, but I will say that on some level, production issues, so financial issues come into play. So if we wanted to keep a price point down and a reasonable um you know, to, to make this again, more accessible to all readers. Um, it was, we had to give up the idea of including color plates within, um, for some of the images. And, uh, we thought, well, maybe that would be for another book. Um, um, but we do, we, we, we did seriously consider including other images beyond the cover painting by, by Chanto Begay. Um, we did include, um, the visual narrative um, created by Tatum McGay for the book. Uh, Tatum is an artist, um, graphic illustrator, done a number of zines and comics, and we are looking to include uh, her work. And through our discussions with her, we broached the subject of creating something that might thematically uh, resonate at the end of the book and implicitly comment on the, the journey of a young uh, Danae writer. And one of the things that she was able to capture, uh, present in the beginning part of the this primarily wordless story, there are a few, you know, a few bits of dialogue, but it's, um, there, you know, only two different uh, frames of the graphic story include dialogue. Um, what she was able to convey is that Danae's storytelling and what is now connected to the quote, literary arts, um, has a deep and a long history through time immemorial. And it included elements that were highly visual. And so the, her story opens um, with a grandfather and a granddaughter or an elderly man, if it's not the grandfather, um, teaching uh, a young, uh, his grand, uh, a young woman, um, using the uh, using a sand painting and some visual elements in the sand painting. And then we later see the young artist, maybe Tatum herself, um, drawing elements from the sand painting, but on her own outside of a ceremonial context. And it's out of that uh, foundation um, that her artistry is born. And she eventually imagines herself um as a published writer on a bookshelf between some of her her um her literary heroes um that include you know um Japanese artists and um, artists like writers like Shakespeare um as well as Laura Tohi and Lucy Tapahanzo, uh both noble or both um Navajo Nation poet laureates.
2: In the acknowledgments, um you Give us a sort of behind the scenes glimpse of how many people are involved in the creation of something like this, um, including, as you've uh, referenced uh, earlier in our conversation, working with descendants of some of the creators who are no longer um, alive. And you also um, mention um, one poet in particular, Joy Harjo, and I was thinking about um, how she also provided a blurb for the back of the book and the importance, um, when we talk about community of mentorship, it sounds like she was a mentor to you, Esther.
3: You know, I I think in, in a literary way, I was mentored by all indigenous writers and definitely had some moments of, of, um, of action and, uh, gratitude for joy. And, you know, so I, I met her briefly while I was a student at the Institute of American Indian arts and, you know, over the years have had interaction and support uh, whenever I've seen her in, in passing. And, you know, so we definitely intentionally reached out to um, Joy at the time who was serving as the Poet Laureate of the United States and as well as Simon Ortiz, another foundational writer um, uh, within uh, Indigenous Poetics and to, to really kind of give us um you know, a really good um, perspective of honor by you know, in, in a sort of way really blessing the, the work that we've done. You know, because I, I do see them as my elders. I see them as um, forerunners in in writing and and knowing the struggles that I've had as an indigenous writer. Um, knowing that you know they paved the way for for me and others in the book and and actually others in the book are their contemporaries right I I think um, Joy was at the IAIA um, possibly at the same time that um, Black Horse was there and um, Gloria was there and maybe even Shanto so I, I think there there was overlap and awareness of everyone who's writing and, and doing the arts. So I think in that sense, it's, it's very much of a community, but again, also in honoring that, um, you know, she was inspirational in her work, but also really um, a- acknowledging that the work that we've done and, and so really appreciating that from her.
2: You, you talk uh, about going to the community and doing the interviews in person with um, a number of the contributors and working in the, the art community to create the list of who would be in the book and what works could be included. There's such a community uh, process of this work. How has it been received by the community?
3: Yeah, I I feel like people have anticipated the book for a long time (laughs) because we have been working on it pretty, um, uh, you know, intentionally the last five years, really just having those conversations with people and and assessing the need and, and getting direction. Um, so, I feel it is well received from folks I talk to Um, and not only in the, on the reservation, but also at other universities, Um, having talked to uh, people who are using the text and reach out and ask questions about certain things. And, and so that's been really great because we want it to be used and we don't want it to be static. And, and we also want folks to know that this is really just a small representation of everyone out there who is a, a, a writer, right. And who is part of this storytelling um, process and you know i I often say that in that you know many of the writers in the book you don't have a single volume um book published but they've been published in different areas so they've made themselves known through their writing as being writers and they might have other careers but i think part of that also every family, every Navajo family probably has somebody who is the writer of the family, the person who is asked to um, represent and speak in public, or to write a poem about this, or to uh, craft some kind of memorial to honor this or that. And and so I think that is um, something that, is maybe unique to indigenous communities. But I I feel like, again, that this is really just a small um, but significant recognition of all the writers who are out there, um, who are writing with and for the Navajo people.
2: I know we're running short on time. So before I need to let you both go, I want to ask you each, what do you hope this episode will spark for listeners? Jeff, can we begin with you?
1: Well, I would love for um, readers who have never encountered uh, a Dene writer or maybe even an Indigenous writer, which is often the case, by the way, um, in the classrooms I teach here, here in Arizona, where there are 23 different Native tribes, students come to my classrooms having never read an Indigenous writer. I've been at dinner tables where highly educated people um, have asked me, indigenous people really write? So what my basic hope would be is that you check out indigenous writing period, but especially um, check out a number of the writers in this anthology. Um, If you can't buy the book, find it at your local library. If you can't find it at your local library, take a look at the University of Arizona Press's catalog page and see the number of writers that are listed. A lot of the writers' work um, is available online. Esther just Edited three different volumes um, in a special series for poetry, um, and there are a number of Indigenous writers and Dene writers who are included there. So that is my hope that you'll look at the beauty and the artistry, the complexity, um, and really the diversity of perspectives um, offered by Indigenous writers.
3: And Esther, yeah, equally with um, you know Jeff's statement. And also really for the indigenous writers out there. I I feel that, you know, the more I learn about Navajo language and the complexity and the worldview of our words with the world and our space really validates the struggle with um native students to write in the english language because they 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 are in conflict those two mediums are in conflict and 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 so understanding that really to as an offering for these young navajo students young navajo writers who i see in the classroom and and really have um, taken a beating as far as their value because of you know, their, their struggle with the English language or um, the grammar of the English language. And, and to really present this book as an offering to say, we have our own grammar, we have our own poetics, we have our own system and and to really encourage that way not only just the writers but also the young students who are developing these writing skills and saying that both is possible right so you know working at a writing uh, writing in, in whatever field you're in of writing is is a skill and that it is attainable and and also that this is not just um, our our moment. This is kind of one pin on on the timeline, and 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 we're looking for people to continue these conversations because it's ongoing, and we're we're seeing more writers take up the challenge to study. Um, literature and with a Navajo with the um, indigenous lens and then also starting to command some of that in and research methodologies and to really make present more of our uh, poetics which I think again combats that whole um, all of the structures of colonialism that are still present. So really um, really want this book to be a contribution of that decolonial and healing process for um, Diné.
2: Thank you both so much for being here today and telling us about your book and what inspired you to create it. This is The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please Join us again.